Well, turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the gospel of Matthew. In the first chapter, Matthew chapter 1. The gospel of Matthew, the very first chapter, Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. And if you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's holy word and follow along silently as I read aloud. Matthew chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. This is what the word of God says. Now the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Birth stories can be fun. If you're hearing this message today, you and I have the following in common. We have a birth story. In general, people enjoy birth stories reflecting upon the events surrounding their birth or the birth of a loved one. And certainly, thanks to technology, people can now share almost anything, including the stories of the events surrounding a little one's screaming entrance into the world outside of the womb. In various degrees of detail, some people journal about it, some blog about it, some actually hire professional photographers to capture every moment for them not to forget. And some choose to share those moments with their family and friends and even with the general public on the interwebs. But prior to this technology, five days into 1979, a young lady's water broke in a New York City apartment. And after 30 fun-filled hours of labor, yours truly came screaming into the world on Sunday, January 7th. Many years later, Thanksgiving 2003 is not one that I'll soon forget. Sarah and I were married just over a year, had come home from Thanksgiving dinner at my aunt's house and headed to bed when Sarah started experiencing what she had insisted was just some indigestion from the food she had eaten, even though she was, as the old King James would have put it, great with child. So I did the only thing that I thought was wise and prudent at the time, which was work through the night to finish painting the nursery. And 20 hours later... Justin Graham LaRuffa was born and just a few weeks ago turned 18 years old. The Bible is full of birth stories, right? Sarah laughed at the thought of her having a baby in her old age after having been barren her whole life. But God got the last laugh in Genesis chapter 21 when Isaac was born. In Judges chapter 13, we read of Manoah's wife having 
uh, been barren uh, all her whole life, but having her barren womb opened by the Lord. And she gave birth to Samson, who would later turn a lion inside out, kill a thousand men, pull down a pagan temple, and be inducted into the proverbial hall of faith by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11. 1 Samuel 1 and verse 6 tells us that God himself had shut Hannah's womb. But 14 verses later, in God's perfect timing and providence, Hannah bore Samuel, whom God would raise up to be a great prophet and anointer of kings. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, where we're spending time in a sermon series throughout the rest of the year, Luke chapter 1 tells us of an older married couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. The angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that Elizabeth will bear a son who is none other than John the Baptist. You have a birth story. I have a birth story. The Bible is loaded with birth stories, but none of them, friends, can light a candle to the birth story that I read in our text today in Matthew chapter 1. I mean, this is otherworldly, completely different, like nothing anyone has ever seen up until then or since then. In all the birth stories I call to your attention, each of those women's were barren, uh, unable to conceive a child. They wanted to have a child, had sex with their husbands in an effort to have a child, but did not conceive. And God changed that when he allowed them to conceive. But note this, they wanted a child. They tried to have a child up until the Lord having done a work. They couldn't have a child and were eventually blessed with a child. Looking at our text today, we find Mary, who we have no reason to believe wanted to have a child, certainly at this point in her life. And we're told specifically in our text that she wasn't trying. Pick it up in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Right out of the gate, Matthew lets us know in no uncertain terms the beginning of the miraculous story of Christ's birth. Jesus was born of a virgin. I think sometimes we just let that, those words roll off our tongue or roll out of our mouth because it's what we say around Christmas. Yeah, Jesus is born of a virgin. Have you ever said that slowly and really thought about that? It's crazy town. Jesus was born of a virgin. And look how God has Matthew set it up. He doesn't just give us the bottom line. He wants us to feel the tension. So look at verse 18 and look how much truth, packed, loaded with truth, verse 18 is. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph. Stop. So here we see that she was committed. The closest thing we have in our society to this would be engagement. But even that doesn't really come with the same weight of Jewish betrothal. Because a break of this commitment would require a divorce according to Mosaic law. Betrothal was serious stuff. And I'm not saying engagement isn't serious stuff, but engagement doesn't hold with it a legal binding agreement where in Jesus's day it did. And so Matthew lets us know she was committed to Joseph and it was just a matter of time before they were married. Look again at verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Stop. Matthew goes out of his way to say they had not Come together. In other words, they had not had sex. Jewish betrothal was serious, almost as serious as marriage, but didn't come with all the benefits of marriage. This was commitment alone and, quite frankly, served as a test, if you will, of fidelity for both the husband and wife-to-be. Matthew lets us know they were passing this test with flying colors. They were betrothed, but they were not sexually intimate. Look at verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Stop. 
Now, had Matthew stopped there, one would assume Mary was betrothed, but hadn't had sex with Joseph, but was found with child, so Mary had sex with another. But that's not the case. Look again at verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This was the work of God. And there you have it. Last week we looked at Matthew explaining to us about Jesus' human genealogy, right? Took 17 verses to do so. And yet here he explains Jesus' divine genealogy. In a single verse. This was the work of God. Point number one. We need to understand the significance of Jesus' virgin birth because without it we'd not have a savior in Christ. You need to understand that. Your birth story, my birth story, my children's birth stories, they're all really nice. But they're not even in the same universe as this birth story. Even the birth stories of the Old Testament, they're awe-inspiring. They're amazing. They stir us to worship the Lord who is sovereign over all things, over all people, born and pre-born. However, at the end of the day, and I'm not trying to minimize it, but I am trying to put it into perspective, two people had sex and a baby was conceived. You want a Christmas miracle? Here's your Christmas miracle. Matthew 1 and verse 18. After Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Christmas Miracle. It beats anything you're going to see on the Hallmark Channel. Christmas miracle. One of the best things in the world to do when it comes to a narrative, and that's what this is, a narrative, is to perhaps place yourself in the story. Find yourself in the story. I think it's actually the hardest season to preach on Christmas is the Christmas season. Because there's so much noise and tradition. And I'm not against all that. I love that. I love the lights. I love the smells. I love the eggnog. I love it all. I'm right there with Jim Gaffigan. I love taking a tree from outside and putting it inside my house. I like taking lights from inside my house, putting it on the outside of my house. I love all that stuff. I really love the Christmas season. But sometimes you got to do your best to forget the little people manger scene and the stuff that typically comes to mind around Christmas and place yourself in the story and imagine, uh, particularly ladies, imagine getting a visit from an angel that informs you of your pregnancy despite the fact that you've not had sex and that the kid who is inside of you is God's, which happens to be the Son of God, which means he is the Messiah. Christmas miracle. See, the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin isn't just a a fun fact or a secondary circumstance surrounding his entrance into the world. This isn't God just throwing his weight around, showing how awesome he is, like it wasn't really necessary, but God really just wanted to boom, to come in with a bang and really do something exciting. This was absolutely necessary. You see, the virgin birth fulfills Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, we read this, and it's in your outline. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And the virgin birth means that Jesus has a sinless human nature. We read in the book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So if Jesus had a human father, he would be a sinner just like me, just like you, just like all of us, and wouldn't be 
the sinless Savior that we so desperately need. And so that's important to realize when we say that Jesus is the second Adam or the better Adam. Adam and Eve were created by God. They were not sinners by nature, but they were sinners by what? Sinners by choice. And since Adam and Eve were sinners by choice, death and sin came through one man. His name is Adam. And the rest of us all inherited a sinful nature and also make sinful choices. So when we say Jesus was the second Adam, what do we mean? We mean that Jesus was created without a human father. He did not have a human father. God the father was his father. And so he was not a sinner by what? Nature. And then lived a perfect life, was tempted in every way, yet did not sin, and therefore was not a sinner by choice. But you need to understand that that falls or stands on the virgin birth. Because if Jesus had a human father, he would have a human nature. If he had a human nature, he would be like you and like me, and he would be a sinner by nature and also perhaps a sinner by choice. And even if he was not a sinner by choice, but was a sinner by nature, he could not be your savior. He would not be the proper substitutionary atonement that we need in the perfect, not almost perfect, but perfect lamb of God. And so the virgin birth is a miracle and it's absolutely essential to everything that happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's something we do well to remember during the Christmas season and really throughout all of our lives. But let's read on in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 in verse 19. And her husband, Mary's husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, let's take a look at that sentence and how it's structured and let's bottom line it. In other words, what's the bottom line? What are we told? Well, we see from the text that Joseph, her husband who wasn't her husband because we're told they were betrothed, but he might as well have been her husband because it's just that serious. So Joseph, her husband, resolved to divorce her quietly. In other words, Joseph has decided to break off the engagement, and you can't blame him for that, right? Because here we have Joseph who has realized that his fiancée is pregnant. Joseph knows that he has not had sex with Mary, and so he you can't blame him for assuming, okay, he knows how babies are made, and so he knows that since he didn't have sex with his fiance. His fiance must have had sex with somebody else. He's not jumping. I mean, he's kind of jumping to conclusions, but can you blame him? Of course not. And so he thinks all is different. All is over. This is a terrible thing. And so he resolves to divorce her quietly. If betrothal was as serious as marriage, then breaking an engagement was as serious as divorce. But he decided to do so quietly. That's the bottom line. Here's my question. What about you? I don't want to ask you what you would do if you were Joseph. Because I think that's probably harder to imagine because it's, this has only ever happened to Joseph, right? You're not like, well, I had a friend where that happened to. I think I would kind of familiar with it. That, that never said no one ever, right? So let's forget about Joseph. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture yourself as Joseph's friend. Joseph's friend. What counsel would you give Joseph if he came to you and explained the situation he's in? Joseph comes to you and says, you're not going to believe this. Mary's pregnant. You look at him and you're like, 
bro. He's like, it's not mine. We haven't, we haven't known each other. We haven't had sex. Bro. I know, I know. Now, based on what we see from the text, we don't believe any conversation happened. Based on what we know of Israel, ancient Israel being a shame-based culture, the odds of him having discussed this with anyone other than the Lord are pretty slim. But I'm just saying if you were in the position to talk to Joseph about his situation, what would you tell him to do? I want you to understand the significance of him divorcing her quietly. And so you're talking to Joseph, and Joseph says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it off. And you're like, yeah, I, I assumed you would. He goes, well, I'm going to do, do it quietly. I'm not going to press charges. I just, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that to her. I'm not going to press charges. You might look at him and say, you may want to reconsider that. I mean, divorce law is a thing, and God created it, and he created it with the victims of sin in mind. And so I'm not saying you want to slander her, but I don't think you also want to be associated with this child. And so you may want to not take advantage of her, but take advantage of the law that God has put into place for a situation such as this so that it would be clear. Yes, to God, he knows, but particularly to your fellow man that this really was not your child. And so you may, you may counsel Joseph. You may want to think about that. You don't have to be a, a, a a jerk about it, but if, even if you just want to be a biblically law-abiding citizen and charge her with fornication, God has put these laws into place for a reason. And I don't know what Joseph would say beyond me. He'd probably say, oh, I'm going to sleep on it. And sleep he did. Now think with me and read with me. Let's say that's all the verse said would be that Joseph was going to divorce her quietly. We'd be left to speculate as to why he would have made that decision. In other words, if the verse just said, verse 19, and her husband Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly, that would be sufficient. We'd probably think he just didn't want to deal with a whole public trial or pressing charges or blowing it up out of proportion. Or maybe we think he had bigger fish to fry and just wanted to Wanted out as smooth as possible, just wanted to move on. His heart was broken and he didn't want to go through a whole other thing. Maybe we think he just wasn't that type of guy. And although he wanted out, he was kind of a quiet guy and just wanted out in kind of a quiet way. But that's not all the verse says. Look at verse 19. Look at the text. And her husband Joseph, comma, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, comma, resolved to divorce her quietly. So apparently, Joseph was what the Bible calls there, what Matthew says, was a just man. And for some reason, Matthew writes that down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, connecting the fact that he was a just man to the decision he made to divorce her quietly. But here's the question. Why would one who is just not exercise his rights in the law? This was an exercise of rights, folks. Joseph concluded he did 
have that right because clearly, clearly his fiancée had committed a adultery because she's pregnant and he didn't have sex with her. He's not jumping to conclusions here. It seems pretty obvious. Why would somebody who is described as a just man, a just man, when we think just, we think fair, we think right, we think of justice, we think of evening out the scales. Why would somebody who is described as a just man not do the just thing by the just law of God? And for that, I want to take you to a couple of different places in Scripture and show you what I believe the Bible is telling us here. And these are not in your outline, so follow the Bouncing Bible and keep your finger in Matthew 1 and flip over four chapters to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and look at verse uh, 44. Here's Jesus having, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, says this, verse, Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain, say it with me, on the just and on the unjust. And so there's that same English word, but more importantly, you need to know that's the same Greek word. Dikaios, the text talks about how there are certain blessings of God that are universal to all people, both God's children and God's enemies, such as the sun and the rain. This is the same word that's used as just in Matthew chapter 1. And so here, just means what? The saved, the redeemed, the called, those who have been born from above. Flip over eight more chapters to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, and look at verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the dikaios, the righteous. So there the word isn't translated just, but it's the exact same Greek word that was used in Matthew 5, the exact same Greek word that was used in Matthew 1 to describe Joseph as a just man. Here, it means righteous. And so we have an example of this word being translated as the just, the saved, the justified, if you will. We have an example of this word being translated as righteous. And finally, look over at one more text in not the Gospels, but the book of Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and take a look at uh, verse 16. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the dikaios, the righteous, shall live by faith. Or in some translations it says what? The just shall live by faith. That's the same Greek word. There it is again. The righteous, the just, the justified shall live by faith. Now, if you go back to our text today in Matthew chapter 1, you perhaps have a little bit of a better understanding as to what it means that Joseph was a just 
man. We gain a better understanding of why Joseph was about to do what he had decided to do, and that is this. Joseph was a believer. Joseph was a believer. Joseph loved God. Joseph was more than a a do-gooder. He was more than just a law keeper. Joseph had the gift of saving faith and believed that God would send a Messiah. Did not know this was the Messiah, at least yet, but believed that God would be sending a Messiah to die on the behalf of his sins and the sin of all of God's people that they might be saved. Joseph was an Old Testament believer. And like all Old Testament believers, had faith in the promises of old that God would redeem him. And since God has not dealt with Joseph as his sins deserve, and Joseph knew he was justified in God's eyes, not because of himself, but because of God's grace, he doesn't press charges against Mary and decides to, yes, divorce her, but to divorce her what? Quietly. Not desiring to put her to shame. His reaction reflected the grace of a Savior. He had no idea he was going to be among the first to behold and the first to hold, to hug, to snuggle, and to raise. And so Joseph, being a just man, not willing to put Mary to shame, Joseph being a righteous man, Joseph being a saved man, Joseph being a faithful man who had faith in God and was eternally grateful for God's mercy upon his life, did not desire to see Mary put to shame and decided to divorce her, but to divorce her quietly. Point number two, even when wronged, believers, Christians respond in a way that reflects the grace of our Savior. So how cool is it that Joseph was reflecting the grace of a Savior that he had not even known was in his wife's uterus, in utero at that time, and yet was living a life that was pleasing to God. We need to learn and would do well from Joseph's example, his initial reaction to the situation at hand. Even when, so remember, we haven't gotten to Joseph's dream yet. Nothing's been explained to him yet. We're still in the first two verses of our text, verse 18 and verse 19. Even when Joseph thought he was wronged, and rightfully so, he's just connecting the dots, like, I know where babies come from, and I know I didn't have sex, and I know my fiance is pregnant, and so I think I've been wronged. Even when he thought he was wronged, he responded in a way that reflected grace, the grace of his stepson, our Savior, Jesus Christ. What about you? How do you respond to someone when you believe or know for sure that you've been wronged? I mean, maybe you've been in a similar situation. You're like, no, bro, not that. No, but wait, not this situation. But maybe you've been in a situation in which, so far as you can tell by God's grace, you're doing everything right. You're not perfect, but you're doing things right by the book, to the letter, whether it's a work situation or a, a friend situation or a, a marriage, family, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, neighbor situation. I don't know, whatever it is, you're swimming upstream. You're working hard and it's not been easy, but by God's grace, you're pulling through and enduring and trying hard. And at the end, you still get the shaft. What would you do? How do you respond To someone when you believe or know you have been wronged. I don't have a a perfect marriage by any stretch of the imagination. I'm in it. I believe we have a strong marriage. I believe we have a good marriage. But I also can look back now 
on, I think, relatively the first seven years of our marriage and say that there was something that Sarah and I were really, really, really good at, and that was scorekeeping. Yours truly has a good memory. It does not always serve me well. And so we would get into a disagreement about any number of a various amount of things. Usually the thing that you're arguing over isn't really worth arguing over, but it's the thing that reveals what's going inside your heart. We had one of our worst, one of the worst disagreements we ever had, I kid you not, was sitting in a minivan over French fries. Wendy's French fries. Do you want fries? No, I don't want fries. You sure you don't want fries? I'm going to get fries. No, I don't want fries. I get the fries, she starts eating my fries. I'm upset that she didn't want the fries when I offered to get her fries. I'd rather be generous and have her get the fries. She's like, why can't you share your fries? I'm like, why couldn't you get your own fries? I'm not even kidding. This was the start of a 90-minute thing. (laughs) Having nothing to do with fries about six minutes in. In 2009, the Lord did a very, very, very kind work in our marriage seven years in. And showed us what it looks like when mercy intersects with marriage. And since then, not perfectly, but since then we have resolved to not treat each other as our sins deserve. So when Sarah's wrong, why are you laughing? I didn't even finish the sentence. What is, how could that be? You don't think she can be wrong. Whatever. (laughs) She's going to be wrong. And I'm not going to treat her like she's wrong. She's going to wrong me. She's a human being. But people on the same team don't keep score. They win together or they lose together. I'm going to wrong her. We don't wrong each other intentionally. We're just, remember, sinners by nature and sinners by choice. We're not going to treat each other as our sins deserve. We're going to strive to not keep score. Well, last time you and this time me and this time you and so this time me. Allowing mercy to profoundly affect the way I treat others. Allowing mercy to profoundly affect the way you treat others has literally life-changing effects. You literally sleep better. You literally live better. And most importantly, chiefly, it honors Christ. Who came into this world to die on a cross so that sinners by nature and sinners by choice like you and like me would not be treated as our sins deserve. We won't go there today, but many years later during Jesus' earthly ministry, he's an adult, he's confronted, cornered really, uh, with a question along similar lines regarding the woman caught in adultery. And he demonstrates his mercy by responding to their trick question in John chapter 8. They continue to ask him, 
What should we do? This one was caught in adultery. What should we do? What should we do? Hey, what should we do? She was caught in adultery in the act, caught in the act of what should we do? What should we, I know what the law says. What should we do? What should we do? He wasn't really looking for information. They knew what they should do. They wanted to see what he would say. What should we do? What should we do? And Jesus stands up and says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Joseph was a just man, a righteous man, a saved man, a lover of God. And as such, he didn't want to make a public example of Mary, but decided to divorce her quietly. His love for the God of mercy sets him up to receive a word from the Lord in a dream. Puts him perfectly in the mindset where he would be hearing from God. And then you read about the dream that he has, and you're like, well, yeah, he would have listened. I mean, God spoke to him through an angel in a dream. Wouldn't he listen? Right, because Adam did so well when God spoke to him in Genesis chapter 3. Right, because when God said to Cain that, you know, sin's waiting at the door, but you should rule over it, Cain did so well. Right, because we just spent a whole summer looking at Jonah. Not exactly your stellar example of God says, do something and I do it. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that it was easier to obey God because you heard him audibly. And if only you heard him audibly, you'd be obeying him better. You would not. If we struggle to obey in reading him, we'd struggle to obey in hearing him. It's the same thing. And so when Joseph, he's in this mentality, he's not perfect at all. But he's obviously hurt. You say it doesn't say that in the text. Bro. He's obviously hurt, right? Like his, he, his heart must be broken. His, his wife, he believes, has, has had sex with someone else. He's ob- and there's a baby. It's very, very complicated and entangled. He's obviously hurt, but you know what matters to him more? Not the fact that he's hurt, but the fact that he wants to extend mercy in this relationship. Even at great cost to himself. I don't know that I would have advised him to do this just as his friend. But he's willing to do this, decides to divorce her quietly, and goes to bed. Pick it up in verse 20. As he considered these things, I think I would be considering these things if this happened to me and I was trying to go to sleep, right? As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. This is helpful. This is corrective. This is prophetic. What a... What a dream. What a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Telling Joseph what to do. Do not fear. You have no reason to fear taking her as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son. And who shall call his name Jesus? You shall call his name Jesus. So it's this, it's, he's been voluntold, kind of. You know, like telling him what to do, but then also saying this is what you're going to do. 
calling him to trust in God, saying, take her unto his wife and you're going to call his name Jesus. There's this prodding to do something that would go against his nature, completely against his nature. And then that encouragement that this is going to happen. It's going to happen. This is all part of God's plan. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I really want to emphasize that this was a real decision made by Joseph to do what he did. You know that, right? This was not like, well, duh. I mean, he had no choice. This is real, active obedience. He wasn't scared into it. Remember, not everyone who hears from God responds in obedience. And plus, it's a dream. You ever have those dreams? You're like, I think it was real. I'm not sure. It's a dream. Picture the next day. You're talking to your friend, Joseph. How you doing, man? I've been praying for you. I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. I, I slept on it. I've had a change of heart. Good, man. I, I figured you'd come around. I, like, it's, it's not, you don't want to be mean, but it's just the, He's like, no, actually, I'm going to marry her. Bro. Yeah, I'm going to marry her because I had a dream. Oh. Seems reasonable. Really, what was in your dream? Uh, God sent an angel to tell me to marry her. Did he? That's great. I'm not finished. He also said that the, the baby is his. That's God's baby. Sure. It's God's baby. Yeah, so I'm going to marry her because she's going to give birth to the Son of God and he's going to save his people from their sins. Bro. Obeying God sometimes lines up and makes a lot of sense and sometimes just doesn't to a lost and dying world. But that's what Joseph decided to do. Swim upstream. Not do the right thing. Just do the right thing. But do what God called him to do. Joseph decides to respond in obedience consciously. He's just in the moment doing what God would have him do. Please don't think for a second, since you have some clarity, because we're, we're after the fact and we're reading back, we're like, well, clearly he would have known that that fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah. <laughs> Pretty sure he was not thinking that at the moment. He... In, in a very short period of time, finds out his fiancée is pregnant, decides to divorce her quietly, hears from the Lord in a dream through an angel, and then decides that he's going to actually still marry her because he had a dream that God told him to do that. He's not like, you know what? 
I think we're fulfilling prophecy. But in God's providence, working through his obedience in the moment, in God's providence, in God's kindness, what Joseph deciding to do by responding in obedience fulfills prophecies quoted there from Isaiah chapter 7. And then in so doing, Joseph takes legal responsibility of Jesus and therefore makes him legally and officially in the house of David, but also in the line of David because of the genealogy of Mary spoken of elsewhere in Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. And all Joseph did, I'm not trying to make less of it, but I just want to just bottom line it. All Joseph did was obey. And by him obeying what God had called him to do in the moment, in his situation, in his marriage, at that point in his life, God was working together a plan that he had from eternity past to send a Savior who would be in the line in the house of David to die on behalf of sinners like you and like me. Hallelujah to Christ. And Joseph believed and obeyed. Not simple. I'm simplifying it, but it was not simple. It was very difficult. But never, ever, ever underestimate what God could be doing in your life and in the grand scheme of redemptive history by you believing and obeying. By whatever the Lord is calling you to do, to believe and obey. One more point as we come towards the end of our time together. Look back in Matthew chapter 1. In verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. Jesus is a form of the Hebrew word Joshua or Jeshua or Jehoshua, which means Jehovah will save. God will save from the very beginning of Christ's earthly life, even before he was born. He's in utero. His purpose was crystal clear. He will save his people from their sins. And oftentimes Jesus is referred to as the greatest teacher ever because of how he taught the word of God. And clearly that's true. He's Jesus. Who better to teach the word of God than the word himself? People oftentimes remark at Jesus' compassion as is demonstrated in his healing touch and love for the poor and marginalized. And that's clear throughout the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, where Luke highlights his compassion towards the poor and the marginalized. Jesus is noted for his ministry to women as his life demonstrated their equal value in his sight and the sight of his father as he went out of his way to show his love to women who were marginalized, women caught in adultery, John chapter 8, the woman at the well, John chapter 4. And Jesus remembered for his miracles, healing the sick, walking on water, casting demons out of people, feeding thousands, even raising the dead. All of this is true, and all of this is reductionism. It's reductionism. Reductionism is when you describe something great in terms that are simpler and then think that the simpler description is sufficient. Friends, it is not. It is not. Jesus was a great teacher, the greatest, but that's not unique. There are other great teachers. Don't reduce Jesus to just a really great teacher. Jesus was compassionate. And since he is God, he is obviously the greatest model of compassion. However, that's not unique to Jesus. Others are compassionate. 
Jesus loved the poor. He loved the marginalized and the outcasts of society. And so do others. So that's not really too special either. Noteworthy, yes. Perfect in Jesus' form, yes. But just not necessarily all that unique. You say, but what about the miracles, bro? Well, they certainly were, were special and unique in their magnitude. But Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. Peter raised Dorcas. We are guilty of reductionism if we reduce Jesus to a great teacher or a compassionate soul or a miracle worker. Jesus is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved, Acts 4 and verse 12. That's it. Not one of the options, not the best option, not the easiest option. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. It's pretty exclusive. He is the way. And the reason he came from heaven to earth through the womb of a virgin and was adopted by Joseph as Joseph obeyed God was all for one reason summed up in our text today in Matthew 1 and verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. And that's what you need to know today. If you're a believer, you need to be reminded of the fact that God sent his son to this world through the womb of a virgin who would have a a perfect nature and live a perfect life and die on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for a sinner like you. And that should bring joy within your heart. I hope your Christmas home smells like pine. I love the smell of pine. I hope you have all the traditions and the things that bring you great joy this season. I really do. I hope you sing great songs. I hope you listen to great music. But friends, there is nothing else. The the capstone of our joy is the fact that Jesus came to die and save his people from their sins. And if you're not a believer, but you've been living in our country and in our world for however long you've been alive, and you know what Christmas is all about, please make sure you understand what I explained to you earlier. That Adam, who was created by God, did not have a sinful nature, but made a sinful choice. And because of Adam, you are therefore a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice. It's the reason why wrong comes naturally and right has to be taught to you. And because you are a sinner by choice, you are hell-bound and hell-deserving without a shot. Look at me. Without a shot of having a relationship. Without a shot of escaping the hell where you are headed to. But God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, on the very first Christmas morn so that sinners like you and like me might put our faith and trust in him because he was going to die on a cross to save his people from their sins. And the wages of sin is death, and God is the ultimate debt collector and collects from everyone either in their eternity in hell or in Jesus' payment on the cross on behalf of their sins. What about you? What are you looking to as payment for your sins? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Not Jesus and something, just Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Because nobody comes to the Father except through him. If that's what you believe, you can rejoice in something so much greater than sugar cookies. Because you can rejoice that you have eternal life because Jesus secured it for you. 
If that's not you, it is my hope and prayer that you would consider and think, think, why don't I believe and what am I trusting in right now? In what basket am I putting all my eggs for my salvation? When the Bible, when the Word of God clearly says He will save His people from their sins, why am I like, eh? Because Jesus is alive, ruling and reigning and coming again, and truly has saved His people from His sins. And in Revelation, when we sing, worthy is the Lamb, we don't sing, worthy is the Lamb who taught, worthy is the Lamb who healed, worthy is the Lamb who walked, worthy is the Lamb who was uh, perfect and kind and compassionate. We say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We will be singing of what Jesus did for all eternity, reflecting on the goodness and the majesty of our Savior and the goodness of the gospel. Hallelujah to Christ. He will save his people from their sins. Lord, we are grateful to behold these truths in your word. We are grateful for, yes, the example of Joseph being obedient, but we are all the more grateful in the example of our Savior, your Son, who was obedient to you, Father, even to the point of dying on the cross, so that you would love us, buy us, redeem us, keep us, and save us. Lord, would the gospel impact all of us in a, in a really, really unique way, each of us personally? Would you call those of us who know you and love you to be reminded of an, a new and afresh? And Lord, would you call people to yourself even this day? Would you save souls for your glory and for their good? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.